Please open your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 20, beginning in verse 7. After a brief introduction, we'll read Revelation 20, 7 through 15. And from that text will be the point of the sermon of the exposition this morning. As I explained two weeks ago when I preached on Revelation 21 to 6, I understand the millennium is in this gospel age when the church is relatively free to spread the gospel while Satan's international influence is curtailed. Even so, earlier judgments will have failed to bring repentance, and as the end nears, the deceiver will find human hearts more receptive to rebellion. One commentator wrote, the millennium proves that humans cannot blame their sinfulness on their environment or on their circumstances. Even if corporate sin were abolished, individual depravity would remain, frustrating God's corporate redemption activity until the final end. One may compare C.S. Lewis's parable of human depravity in his book, The Great Divorce, where he suggests that the damned remain unrepentant, that the damned remained unrepentant. On a liberal, literal level, the damned will surely regret their course, but Lewis's primary point seems to be that the unregenerate humans prefer sin to God's righteousness, so that they're concerned with their consequences, but not necessarily convicted to repent of sin, is the picture. God, however, is pervasively concerned. You might even say God is obsessed with holiness. Holiness is to be set apart. It's to be spiritually pure. In a foretelling of the last battle, God conveys the following to the prophet Ezekiel. You will come up against my people, Israel, like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days, I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me. When through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. That's Ezekiel 38.9, where God promises to vindicate His holiness before their eyes. Not sure what you got. What is that? Hordes of many... Oh, you're looking at Revelation. Ezekiel 38.9 is what I'm talking about. We're almost to Revelation. But Ezekiel 38.9, God promises in reference to Gog to vindicate His holiness before their very eyes. Now, that's an interesting quote from Ezekiel because Revelation is going to actually quote Gog and Magog today in our text. But the promise I want you to pick up on from Ezekiel before we consider Gog and Magog is that God will vindicate His holiness before their eyes, that people will be able to see the vindication of God's personal holiness. The Psalter conveys God's reign and His throne and His might and His trustworthy decrees when he quotes, Holiness befits the Lord's house forevermore. The Psalter says that. So holiness befits the Lord's house. When the earth is said to be filled with the glory of God in Isaiah 6, the evidence of such glory is God's holiness. You may remember it. Maybe you've quoted this at some point in your spiritual journey. Thrice mentioned, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And that's evidence. The holiness is the evidence of God's renown, of God's glory. Hebrews 12.14 makes it clear that believers are to strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 
Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, just one verse prior to our focal text today, says, Blessed and holy, holy, H-O-L-Y, set apart is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him a thousand years. So the word holy is what I'm hoping you'll key in on in the prophecies of Scripture here, holy is the one who shares in the first or a spiritual resurrection, which happens when believers die and their souls are immediately present with Christ. The second death, also a soul death since the worm never dies, has no power over the believer who shares in the first resurrection. But they are already priests of God and of Christ, reigning with Him for this thousand years. So the believer's first resurrection is a physical death. His second resurrection is a glorified body. The unbeliever's First death is a physical death, but the unbeliever's second death is the soul eternally unannihilated and separated from God in hell. So we have spiritual and physical resurrections and spiritual and physical deaths described or implied in Revelation chapter 20. So be a believer. Be a believer. Be with God. And hear this today from the onset. If you're going to hear a passage that is quintessentially about the final judgment, the, the end of this epoch, of this age. So if you're an unbeliever in my hearing this morning, hear the predicament that you're in. You are unholy as we are unholy, but you're not being made holy without Christ in your life. God wants to make you holy through Christ, which means you must be born again. You must receive His free gift of eternal life. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but should have instead what? Eternal life. But that eternal life is contingent upon participation in Christ. His love for us is expressed in the sacrifice and resurrection of His Son. So if you'll receive what Jesus has done for you, unbeliever, you have the right to be children of God, secured for all eternity. He will... Never love you more, as one says, or love you less than he does right now as a believer. His love just is, but his you must be. You must be his. You must move from darkness to light, from unbeliever to believer. Pray to be so. As I led with Ezekiel 38, 9, and we had the wrong 9 a while ago, which is fine because we're not, we're not contingent. Upon that, you can write it down and look it up yourself. Ezekiel 38, 9 says, God promises to vindicate His holiness before their eyes in reference to the passage writing in Ezekiel 38 and 39 about Gog and Magog. And we're going to learn a little bit more about that as we read this eye-popping text about the final battle and the final judgment. And so as we consider the nature of this final battle, let's look at verses 7 through 10. And then we'll consider the nature, of the nature of the final judgment in verses 11 through 15. And it might be better to describe these two subsets, which will comprise our main points this morning, as the final deception and the final revelation. You might be able to think of it more in terms of, understand it more if you think of the final deception in verses 7 through 10, and then the final revelation in verses 11 through 15. So with that introduction, now as you're starting to perhaps take notes on the text, Look at verses 7 through 10, the final deception, and verses 11 through 15, the final revelation. And notice this eye-popping and eye-opening read about the finality of these final things. When all of Scripture and all of Revelation, what they've been driving toward, 
in all seriousness and with all sobriety, it's driving toward this point. Listen to Revelation chapter 20, verse 7 through 15. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, that is, the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Difficult text, isn't it? Difficult text. Lots about books. So let's take our two points on their parts today by looking at verses 7 through 10 first. When you look at verses 7 through 10, consider this final deception. This final deception. Satan will be released, we believe, and deceive the nations again, so they will attempt to annihilate the church. Satan's power is relatively curtailed. It's not completely curtailed, but we're meeting today in freedom. The gospel is being translated into languages preached to the nations. As if released on parole, you might think of it, Satan has one last hurrah. He's able to deceive internationally, aligning powers against God's people, the church. And he actually convinces his followers that the church, and thus their God, can be defeated. Why evoke Gog and Magog in Revelation 20? This ancient man, Gog, of Magog, was rebellious, to put it briefly. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, we find prophecies that God's enemies surround God's people. Most scholars believe that that prophecy was fulfilled in a figure Antiochus Epiphanes, and Epiphanes means God made manifest, or God manifest. And most people believe that, and or at least what I read, most people think that Antiochus IV of Seleucia, who styled himself as Epiphanes, fulfilled the prophecy directly from Ezekiel 38 and 39. He invaded Jerusalem, is what he did, and he despoiled the temple and commanded the burning of the scriptures. He forbade the covenant rite of circumcision he put to death many faithful Jews and ultimately instituted pagan sacrifices in the Jewish temple in 167 B.C., to quote a scholar. So in the first century A.D., then, if you fast forward to the time when John the Apostle likely wrote Revelation 20, our focus text today, he uses the memory of Gog and Magog's powerful alliance, terrible torture of God's people, and swift fall as a parallel for what will happen to the mind behind Gog and Magog, that is, Satan, at the final battle. Satan will be allowed to form one last alliance against God, further helping to stratify sheep from goats, believers from unbelievers, those pursuing holiness from those not pursuing holiness, and there will be little doubt 
at the last battle after the final deception, who is arrayed against who and who is in the one true church. Pressure clarifies motives. Consider a scripture passage that is akin to Revelation 20 from 2 Thessalonians. It describes a buildup to a final deception. And consider the sudden character of the judgment, like what was on Gog and Magog. Speaking of the day of the Lord, the Apostle Paul writes to encourage the believers at Ephesus. He says, and I won't comment on the lawless one proper. I want you to notice other accents in his in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So the power of the Lord Jesus as our coming king. It says the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception. Note that word deception. Satan is a great deceiver of men for those who are perishing. Remember, those that are perishing are perishing. And those of us that are being saved are being saved because of God's love shown to us in Christ. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. So it says in 2 Thessalonians 2.10, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved, so they are deceived, they are perishing. This is a description of the unbelievers' condition. Verse 11 of 2 Thessalonians 2 through 17 says, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. They firmly believe what's false, not true. That's what unbelievers do. In order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. We must not be the ones that take pleasure in unrighteousness. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you. So we get a little benediction Paul writes about after talking about these end times. Brothers, beloved by God, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. I want you to think about this verse for just a moment. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, we thank God because we are believers because of God. This is a refrain in Scripture again and again and again. Our gratitude is the result of him first loving us. We are brothers and sisters beloved by God because he chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Your salvation is based on God's sovereign action. And he who began a good work in us, though we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling to be sure, he who began a good work in us, we're told in Scripture, will be faithful to complete it and so when it says in 2 Thessalonians 2.13 that the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, we can be sure that sanctification is a work of the Spirit in our lives, the same as justification. To put it differently, the Bible speaks of justification, you being made right in God's eyes, declared right in God's eyes, being sanctified, and then finally being glorified in heaven with your glorified body one day. And so it says in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to this he called you through our gospel. So through the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done for you, so that you may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Notice in 2 Thessalonians 2, 17, that 
good works is not antithetical to being saved by grace. We're going to see that again later in the sermon. Ephesians says something very similar. The Bible has this refrain where we are not saved by our works, but that our works is evidence of our being saved. It's an important distinction as we think about these things. And Satan would have us to be deceived about these things, to be sure. I suppose a word about deception is in order from another cross-reference. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, it says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. So there's this deception going on in this age, perhaps intensified toward the end of this age. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God upon the son comes the wrath of God, comes upon, comes the wrath of God upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, Ephesians says, do not become partners with the sons of disobedience, with those that deceive. For at one time you were, you were like them at one time. So this speaks to the the newness of the new birth, it speaks to the newness of the new covenant. And it speaks to the imperative nature of us being born again, of each one of us moving from darkness to light, moving from unbeliever to believer. And this text particularly says that we ought not, that we need not, exhorts us that we are not deceived with empty words of those who are deceived and are convinced of their deception because they're under a delusion. We ought not be persuaded by them because the wrath of God is coming on the day of the Lord. And that's what Thessalonians was writing to address. Paul was writing to address in that particular chapter I referenced just moments ago. He was writing to address concerns about the day of the Lord, concerns that they didn't miss the coming of the Lord. And there were were things written there to comfort them and to comfort us, as this comforts us too as God's children and also exhorts us not to be deceived by empty talkers. Where there are many words, there are often defiles with sin. So let our words be laced with Scripture and that our works be considering the words of the Lord. I got to thinking about achievement in relation to deception. I got to thinking about ultimate things and what we might be tempted by and deceived by in this life and what temptations we might even have as believers, even though we know who the one true God is. And what what really got, got me focusing on application with this point was my dad and I were talking earlier this week about uh, trying to remember our GPAs in school. And you may be one of those people that remembers if you're, a, if you're long since been out of school. You may remember your GPAs, but I would suspect most of you don't. I would also suspect that if you do remember your GPA, I would suspect your employer didn't ask you what it was before they hired you. <laughs> Furthermore, it got me pressing into this, just in case you are one of those people that remembers everything. Can you remember who was homecoming queen at your high school two years before or two years after you graduated? Can you remember who got the highest GPA in your graduating class? Well, how about three of them before you? Can you remember who won the state tournament when you watched or perhaps participated in some sport in school, maybe baseball or basketball, wrestling or football or soccer, track or volleyball, or maybe who won the award for the band or the vocality? If you remember, good for you. I suspect that will become a strain with age. (laughs) It'll be harder and harder to remember. I visited a family cemetery yesterday. I assure you, on good testimony, that our achievements aren't remembered long by our family members after we pass from these earthly scenes. We might leave a legacy, 
but that legacy very unlikely, very unlikely, will be our academic or athletic achievements. It'll probably be based on something else. So it begs the question, this whole train of thought begs the question, where do you want your work recorded? Where do you want your work recorded? Which record book matters most to you as a believer? And I really want you to think about that question. Don't just run past it. Make it personal. Where do I want my work recorded? Not just where will it be recorded. Where do I want my work recorded? And which record book matters most to me as a believer? Satan is a master of deception, of getting us focused in this way or that, out of focus, I should say, of getting us to believe something that appears to be plausible but in fact is not true. And if he can't get us with our stated creeds, he'll get us to deny our confessions and creeds based on the partnerships we make and the aspirations that we pursue. And again, I want to say this in case I didn't make it clear earlier, aspiring to greatness is not sin at all. A modern sense of ambition is not a sin. However, if you, can't, if you don't achieve that spot, and if you can't handle it, it speaks volumes about how you answer this question, how I do too. I'm reminded, and I've said it from this pulpit before, when Troy Aikman's Dallas Cowboys won the Super Bowl, what he'd been striving for for years and years and years when he won it, he said something to the effect of, I thought this would be a bigger deal than it is. Like, I thought this, was, I thought this would feel better than it does. The thing about achievement in this life is, although aspiring to greatness, especially in light of Colossians 3.23, do everything you do as unto the Lord himself, right? So achievement, good, not a problem with achievement. But achievement mustn't become an idol to us. It mustn't become something that is the greatest good for us. And what I'm arguing in this sermon that I think is more biblical, because you should ask me, then, well, what if achievement isn't our greatest good, then what is? I'm, I'm arguing, I'm going to argue, it's holiness. That holiness befits the house of God. That God is holy. That without holiness, no one will see the Lord, Hebrews says. Romans says that in Christ we are more than conquerors. We're not less than conquerors. We're not simply conquerors. So should you conquer the domain in which you have authority, or you will have authority, should you conquer it? You shouldn't think of yourself as having arrived because of what you have achieved. Your aim, your greatest aim through it all is holiness. I was in Sunday school this morning, and here, and Brother Will was teaching about Job's life and how Job had essentially a farm the size of Posey County in which we live, like about the size, and to, to accompany all of his animals, likely, or perhaps close. He was guesstimating, but still, a big place, lots of animals, lots of successes. And God allowed Satan to take it from him. He said he couldn't take his life, but he could take it from him. 
And there's a whole story there. There's 40 chapters in Job. You can read that and think about it. It's not the purpose of this sermon. Just to say, thankfully, in the end, as a believer, Job's highest aim couldn't have been achievement or he couldn't have squared God checking him with, where were you when I created the foundations of the earth? Now, I thought he also said something really helpful. He quoted the Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane in saying that for the minister, the greatest thing that the minister, the, the preacher, the pastor can bring to the congregation is his own pursuit of holiness. And I heard that and almost just went home for the morning, to be honest with you. I thought to myself, he's absolutely right, and I'm unfit to stand in that pulpit. I'm, I'm not trying to be trite with that statement at all. I mean, I fail at holiness every single week. I know you do too. But that doesn't diminish it as a worthy aspirational pursuit. And Satan deceives us from that, I believe, from time to time, and we must refocus. Perhaps every Lord's Day we must refocus. Because our weapon of war against Satan's deceptions is God's holy word, which will not pass away even if heaven and earth does. Describing our end times hope, Matthew 24, 35 says that Jesus declared, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And I could hardly not think about our text today when pondering that. Look at Revelation 20, where we are this morning in our, in our main text, right after the Gog and Magog spot there, which we referenced toward Ezekiel. It says in verse 9 that the enemies of God marched up and surrounded the, the camp and the city of the saints surrounded them, and the devil who had deceived them, this deceiver, the devil, was summarily defeated and was, was thrown down into fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and that's actually elided. The verb were is not there. Perhaps it's where they are. I take it to mean that that the, the false trinity led by the dragon, they all wind up there. We're just getting to the climactic point where Satan himself, where the devil, is cast to his rightful place permanently. And it says here in the Greek, into the eons of the eons, into the ages of the ages, or in your English print Bible, forever and ever he will be there. It's a, a statement of permanence, of absolute permanence in a way that the former ceiling was not. And they will be tormented, they, meaning Satan and his followers, which verse 15 makes clear further in this passage. They'll be tormented day and night, forever and ever and ever. So the belovedness of God's people, I've not forgotten about the word not passing away, but heaven and earth passing away, but just before I, I finalize that comment, the belovedness of God's people described here as a city and a camp, a place and a people, is on display. God's belovedness of us is on display, and on display is the permanence, the foreverness of the punishment of Satan and his followers. And, and so verse 10 transitions well to verses 11 through 15, which is our second point, the final or the great revelation. And I'm using that word with some intentionality because this whole book is revelation, and the book, of, the book of books, the Bible, is revelation. And the book itself that we're in, Revelation, the 66th of 66 books, Revelation. And in addition to that, revelation or apocalypse can just simply mean a revealing, a great revealing or a great sharing. And so I think... These opening of these books is a great revelation. It's a final revelation. So look at verse 11, and let's, let's make a hard pivot from the great deception to the great revelation, from the final deception to the final revelation. For our second point, 
the final revelation of this age, of this church, this gospel age. And let's consider, as we pivot into this point, how earth and sky fled away, how heaven and earth passes away, or as we're going to find in Revelation 21 and 22, how it's remade. And let's consider how God, what, how, let's consider what does not pass away at the presence of God, who does get to stand in the presence of God in and within this second point. So, so, so look at verse 11. When I saw the great throne, the great white throne, the great throne of purity, of holiness, of victory, the great white throne, uh, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, what flees away? Earth and sky. You see that? Earth and sky flees from the presence of the one who sits on the great white throne judgment. The seventh of seven cycles in Revelation. These judgments are described, and they're described in greater detail, and in greater detail, and in greater detail. And the one who comes in on the great horse is in chapter 19, and we have the end of the age, and then we have a greater description of the end of the age, again recapitulated for the seventh cycle, or the seventh time in Revelation 20. And this will be the final time, and in this recapitulation, we find the foreverness and the permanence of the punishment of the enemies of God led by his chief enemy, Satan. And it says in verse 11 that earth and sky fled away. And you should ask a question implied in verse 11 then. In this, this final revelation, why are the elements fleeing from God? I mean, what, what about earth and sky? What about this runs from God? Why would Jesus, in referencing the end of time, why would he say things like in Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words won't pass away? Why would he speak to the eternality of his word and the need to remake or the 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 need to pass away or change of earth and sky? Well, it's because, the answer is because earth is corrupted the same as we are corrupted living on the earth. The Bible says something that is profound and yet just kind of flies past us on balance when we read it in Scripture. If we don't, as is often the case with biblical texts, they're pregnant with meaning. You have to marinate on them. It's the reason why studying the Bible deeply and is so important. It's the reason why things like Sunday school and, and, and expositions is so important. It's the reason why reading the Bible on your own, systematically having a plan to read is so important because the Lord will, will minister to you by marinating on Scripture. But there's this one Scripture, and it says that sin, when it's full grown, it ends in, does anybody know? When sin is full grown, it ends in death. So the corruption or the pervasiveness of sin in our world, that corruption necessarily means death. And not just death of every human being, because outwardly you're wasting away, right? Even if as a believer, inwardly you're being renewed, outwardly you're wasting away. And so if as a believer, outwardly you're wasting away, sin, which is the corruption on your body, it ends in a physical death. So our hope cannot be in the immediate restoration of this body inside of this life. Even if the Lord, like he did for Hezekiah, heals you and brings some relief to your current suffering, you will die and face the judgment, right? Like this body is going to have to be remade. Well, so is the earthly body. The earth is going to have to be remade. The earth is corrupt. As much as, as much as the creation testifies to a creator, and for heaven's sakes it does, right? I mean, how do you look around at all this and not know that there's a maker to meet? I mean, he made stuff. This is so, it's, it's, it's amazing. And modern science really just bears testimony to that, that there's an intelligence and an order to all of this. It's not complete chaos. But this is also marred by sin. 
And so the, the elements and the herky-jerkiness of the peals and the earthquakes and the thunder that's throughout Revelation is pointing to the remaking of the earth. And we're going to get to see that in the next sermons. As we look at Revelation 21 and 22, keep coming, keep, keep tuning your ears, lending me your ears to hear these sermons because these texts, they're hopeful for the believer. Like the remade heaven and earth is hopeful for us. It's not just burned down. Your work matters. What's going on now matters. But your personal achievement needs to be calibrated not toward your kingdom and your personal accomplishment in things like sports, but calibrated toward what God calls eternal accomplishment, which befits his house, which is holiness. That's the calibration I'm hoping to make this morning. And if you think I'm wrong, we can talk about that over lunch. I'm glad to. Because we want to talk about more scripture, not less. When sin is full grown, it ends in death. And earth and sky flees from the presence of absolute holiness. And there's no place found for them. This verse 11, as we talk about the final revelation, is fascinating to me at the end. It says no place is found for them. I, I, my seminary president at the time, when I went to school, he's actually still there. He had a saying that he liked to say a lot. He said a lot. A lot of his teaching is famous for worldview teaching. He would say that with regard to the anti-God movement, with regard to gender and sexuality, he would say, you can rest assured, no matter how rural it is where you live, no, no matter how much you try to cloister, no matter how much of the Benedict option you pursue, there will be no place to hide. They're coming for you. They're going to come for you. They're going to come for you. They're going to come for you. With regard to acquiescing to the gender and sexual revolution. That's his, sort of been his mantra for 20 years. Probably right about that. I would think eventually that's going to get there because let's just face it, what God teaches from cover to cover about gender and sexuality is not embraced by our culture today, is it? It's not embraced by those that hold the levers of power. This is not a political statement. It's a moral statement. We've lost our compass when it comes to marriage and family, haven't we? And if we have any hope, we're going to have to find it again if there's going to be any kind of restoration in this particular epic, within this particular subset of people, within this particular culture, there's going to have to be a recovery of that. And the glad recovering of that is going to come through the preaching of the gospel. We're going to have to share the gospel, which includes great constructs of gender, great, great hues of gender within it, right? And so what I'm grasping from here and trying to, to impact to you is it says here, there was no place found for earth. There's no place found for anything corrupt. What I want to impress upon you here is just the, the world looks like it's surrounding us. It looks like everything is anti-God in some form or fashion. It looks as if we have no place to hide. But just like Luke does a great reversal from the poor to the rich in his gospel and his explanation of the gospel, so we have a great reversal coming from the unbeliever to the believer and who sets in the seat of power. Like we gather out here as if we're sort of like there's no place to hide. And Jesus said that the gates of hell will not overcome you. There is an offensive mechanism, and I mean offense, not offensive, of the gospel that needs to be told to the world. And in our telling them, they may sneer and malign and argue and leave us no place to hide in our antiquated views about things like I said, gender and sexuality. However... In the end, in the end, we have opportunity to stand in the presence of the Lord, as we shall see right here in this text, and they do not. Without knowing Christ in this life, there will be no place for them to hide. They are the ones on the outside looking in. 
The earth itself will kowtow to the presence of the one on the great white throne, and so will every single person, great or small, ever created. That is terrifying for you if you're an unbeliever. But for the purpose of this gathering as believers, what is it? It's rejoicing, isn't it? It's rejoicing. The, the, this by faith, we're not on the outside looking in. We're on the inside looking out. Look at, at verse 11. It says, no place found for the book at verse 12. And I saw the dead. It says great and small, which is mirrorism for everybody, all kinds of people. I saw the dead standing before the throne. And books were opened. Now you should naturally ask the question, so, so what books? What, what is it that we're talking about in this, this utterly comprehensive final judgment with people, places, and things on display? Well, the books, I think, are the books of deeds, the books of works. Books are opened. There's more than one of them. Books were opened, then another book was opened, which is the book of life. But books, plural, is the books that are opened before the book is opened. And I'm indebted to a dear friend and to a pastor, Kim Riddlebarger, to understand that. And I want to commend that to you. But I do simply think that there are books and books of works, and then there is the book of life. And we need to contrast them before we finish today. But I, I want to begin by saying something about, in this, this great final revelation, about those books, plural, of works. And it's, it's an obvious point, but it needs to be made. It'll be obvious once you hear it. There is no deed that God does not chronicle. Next time you're reading through the book of Chronicles in your Bible and your reading plan, and you're like, why am I hearing this all again? Why is Chronicles so important? It's because God is a chronicler. He's a chronicler. Or something like that. God is a chronicler. God gave us two books titled Chronicles. Really one in the Hebrew Bible. It's one book. We break it into two because it's so long and unwieldy. God is a chronicler. Next time you're reading genealogy, remember, the, God is a chronicler or, or whatever, chronicle. God chronicles. It, I mean, there's more to chronicles than that, but that's at least something you get from it. Because we have this little summary statement here in Revelation about these books. He's a chronicler, and these books were opened. Books, plural. It's the books, if, if we're getting this right, and again, talk to me about it. It's one of the most difficult chapters in the Bible, Revelation 20. Talk to me about it. You know, glad to talk about these things. I'm glad to borrow brains, learn from you, you from me. But if these are the books of deeds, there's a bunch of them. Everyone, great and small, from the, from the history of the world, everybody that will have ever lived has a, a batch of deeds, and not a single one of them is lost on the chronicler. -er. Nothing you've ever done is lost on God. Now, that, that is a big, big batch of truth, isn't it? There's this little verse in Numbers that says in Numbers 32, 23, that you can be sure of this, your deeds will find you out, your, or your sins will find you out. Everything you've ever done will be found out. We just soon face that before we get there, right? And it's better off just to face that, like, shoo, there's, there's no hiding, there's no, there's no kind of, as we said, cloistering off of our deeds either. We, don't, we, don't, we can't put these things over here. He sees it all. And, and that's, uh, that's important. You know, my daughter asked me on the way home uh, yesterday, she said we were driving back and visiting my family, and she said, so what is omnipotent? I'm like, you're five, why are you asking me about that? Well, they talked about it in Sunday school, right? Well, what is omnipotence, right? What are the omnis of God? Well, one of the omnis of God is he knows everything, right? 
everything. God's omniscient. He knows everything. They say, well, how can God know? Because he's God. <laughs> Jumping back to the first point, the great deception of Satan is, well, he, he, he can't do that. I mean, what, that's, you get your, view, your view of God is just too, too big. Too, no, no, no. Actually, that's God. He's a chronicler. He knows it all. He knew it all. He will know it all. There's no place to hide from your deeds. Now, there's good news here. We're going to come back to that again. Clearly, there's good news. But, but the backdrop for the good news is the bad news. Like, there's this blackness where the light really pops on it. So you have to get that all have sinned, that all have grotesquely fallen short of the glory of God. And Revelation 20, 12 describes that the, all the dead, great and small, are standing. He describes them as standing before the great right throne judgment. And books are open, the books of deeds. And then the final book was opened, which is the book of life, or a book, rather, that is separate from the other books. The books of works is the book of life. And it says at the, in verse 15 that the names that were written in the book of life, those are the ones that are going to be spending eternity with God. But I need to focus for a bit more on these other verses in between. It says that in verse 12, let's see, then the other book was opened, which is, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, books were opened. Then the book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what is written in the books. And according to what they had done. According to what they had done comes at the end of verse 12. Notice it again at the end of verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. There it is again. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. So death, the culmination of sin, is finally ultimately defeated. Then the second death, the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. The second death. We talked about second death earlier. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So notice, this is what I was trying to get the bookends here of this part. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, verse 15, and it says up in verse in the lengthier verse 12, then another book was opened, which is the book of life. So there's the, the, the header and the footer of that concept of the names written in the book of life. And you, you've probably seen this before, before Revelation 20, if you, if you think about it. You've probably seen it. Um, I, I won't quote it directly in the interest of time, but Philippians chapter 4, there's this tussle amongst gospel-striving women in the church at Philippi, Yodia and Syntyche. And he says, you two need to figure out some agreement. And he ends that little passage with, in Philippians 4.3, he says, because your names are both written in the Lamb's book of life. Paul had this, this confidence that these ladies, even though they, they were arguing about something, they were not in agreement about something in the church at Philippi, which we don't have any kind of an idea what it means to disagree in the church, do we? That never happens to us. That must be reserved for the first century. I'm kidding. And so he says to them, hey, Yodi and Syntyche, you need to figure out how to, to coexist in this thing. Your names are both written in the, in the book of life. And most of the time we read through that, ethically, and we don't think about the book of life, but that's a text that's, that's one of many places where the book of life is referenced. And this is, of course, the Lamb's book of life. We get to see that again at the end of Revelation chapter 21. It's where every name is written that will stand in the final judgment and be welcomed into God's kingdom, every believer. So, so again, the, the scene here is, and he's pulling heavily from Daniel 2, 7, 12. There's a lot going on here, more than we have time to, to chronicle. But the scene is everybody's alive again. So all the dead are called up. Everybody's alive. Everybody's standing. The scene is books or biblias. The Greek word for, for, for book is biblia. Biblias are being opened. That's where we get the, the word Bible. Every work is known. The scene contrasts God's people surrounded in verse 9 with Satan's people standing but insecure in verse 12. 
And, and death is the final thing that gets judged. So death is the, it's the existential threat that we all fear, right? If, if, we, if we go through a natural chronology in our life and life isn't suddenly taken from us, we start to think about death as we age more and more and more. We're wise to think about it as, as young people, and we start to get closer and closer, and we, we have to really put down roots when we're facing that threat of existence, and we have to really put down roots and think about, okay, what is it that I've said I believe in? How does that affect the fact that outwardly I'm wasting away, that this, this thing is going to have to be remade if it's going to be made at all? It's not going to make it otherwise. And so that, that's, death is the final thing. And so the, the hope comes, the gospel hope comes right here when death is defeated. It's, it's thrown away, and symbolically with it, sin is thrown away. So consider a different passage. John chapter 5, verses 24 to 29. Consider this. It says, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Bam. You believe, unbeliever, believe today, bam, you have eternal life. Instantaneous. Believers, you have life. You do not come into judgment, but you, bam, you've instantly passed from death to life as a believer. Regenerated person, you're a believer. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here where the, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. It would have been marvelous to have heard this taught in the early first century AD, I'm sure. Don't marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. All these dead people, great and small, they're going to hear his voice. They're going to stand. They're going to come out, verse 29. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now hold that last verse for just a moment. Because it is really easy to get tripped up here. Really easy to get tripped up here. Now, it says, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, take a step back. You don't have to step back. You're in a pew, but I can step back okay, and, and, and ponder this for just a moment. What is Jesus saying in the record that's in John chapter 5, verse 29, when he says that those who have done good, resurrection of life. Those who have done evil, resurrection of judgment. It, it, it seems as if he is saying here that there is good works that follow those that will be in the resurrection of the life. And it seems to say that there are evil works that follow, flow out of those for the resurrection of judgment. Everybody's resurrected, by the way, believer and unbeliever. So if, if you take that... Without other biblical data, you could run into a heresy that you're judged, which is an old heresy. John Cassian was one that displayed it. It's an old heresy where you would be responsible for whether or not you get into heaven based on what you've done. Hey, could you put that verse back up, verse 29? I wasn't quite done with it yet. Um, it's uh, John, yeah, that one. So you could be responsible. That, this is what I think this is saying, though. I think what it's saying is that works, good works, follow for a believer. That a believer understands God's holiness as much as you can understand it as a believer. I mean, it's vast and, and incomprehensible. 
and pursues holiness. And so, even if there are meager amounts of works, even if you're saved like the, the thief on the cross and you have a relatively small amount of time, you'll have inner works, you'll have spoken works, words of works, and you will have works if, if you live any time after your conversion by which you will do good. Now, the good is relative and it does not justify you, but good works follow in the life of a believer because he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 seem to affirm this way of reading John 5. Consider Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So how are you saved? It's by your faith, right? Not your works. And it says very clearly in this, and this is not your own doing. You're saved by faith. Faith alone, grace alone, all the solas of the Reformation. I'm not contravening any of them, just to be clear. So argue with me about something else at lunch. Not that. I'm not contravening the five solas. This is not your own doing. It's a gift from God. Your salvation, gift from God. Now, verses 9 and 10, though. Not a result of works, so that no man may boast in their works for salvation. You weren't justified by your works. But look at verse 10. For we are therefore His workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for what? For good works. Well, where do those come from? It's the pursuit of holiness. It's that inner desire to follow Christ, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We walk in these good works that are produced and credited to Christ, but we are laboring in our sanctification in a way that we didn't labor for our justification. It means that God chose the means of Christ to save you from the foundation of the world, and in due time you have been born into the means of sin and now born again into the means of salvation, that is, receiving Christ Jesus as Lord. So when Revelation 20 shows, it says, so the believers too will be judged according to what they have done, we have seen this before. We've seen it in 2 Corinthians 5.10. We've seen it in Matthew 12. We've seen it in Acts 17 and Romans chapter 2. We've seen it in verses like what we're reading, what we just read a while ago as proof texts to describe that believers will stand at judgment and there is a record of their deeds. And it is true that our deeds will not get ourselves justified. But there will be deeds following our justification, deeds involved in our sanctification, that are chronicled by the chronicler. Okay, really going to borrow brains here. And really going to borrow brains because I've consulted with some of you this week about this sermon. And I'm just going to read a few quotes. One of you recommended Walter Marshall. And here's, here's what he says about this subject. He says, Great multitudes of ignorant people that live under the gospel harden their hearts in sin and ruin their souls forever by trusting on Christ for such an imaginary salvation that does not consist at all in holiness, but only in forgiveness of sin and deliverance from everlasting torments. They would be free from the punishment due to sin, but they love their lust so well that they hate holiness and would not be saved from the service of sin. The way to oppose this pernicious delusion is not to deny, as some do, that trusting on Christ for salvation is a saving act of faith, but rather to show that none do or can trust on Christ for true salvation, except they trust on Him for holiness. Neither do they heartily desire true salvation if they do not desire to be made holy and righteous in their hearts and lives. If, God and, if ever God and Christ give you salvation, holiness will be one part of it. If Christ does not wash you from the filth of your sins, you have no part with Him, John 13, 8 says. What a strange kind of salvation do they desire that do not care for holiness. They would be saved and yet altogether dead in sin. Aliens from the life of God, bereft from the image of God, deformed by the image of Satan, his slaves and vassals to their own filthy lusts, 
utterly unsuitable for the enjoyment of God in glory. Such a salvation as that was never purchased by the blood of Christ, and those that seek it abuse the grace of God in Christ and turn it into lasciviousness or perpetual impurity, living in unseemly life that Revelation 21 Eight, we'll talk about. That is Walter Marshall, The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification, an old, old author indeed. Or I quoted Riddlebarger earlier. Listen to how he says it like this. Beloved, we need never fear that day when the books are opened. We need never fear that day when the books are opened. Yes, we will appear before the throne and be judged according to our deeds, but in God's sight we have obeyed His commandments perfectly. He will find no hint or trace or stain of sin in any one of us. Why is that? Is it because we have obeyed His commandments perfect and have made amends for our every infraction of God's law? No, of course not. On that day, God will see us as though we have been perfectly obedient and as though we are without sin. How is this possible? Because Jesus Christ fulfilled the covenant of works and kept the law of Moses. Through faith, His obedience is credited to us. Furthermore, Jesus Christ died for every sin we have ever committed or will ever commit in the future, no matter how public or no matter how private it may have been. How can God punish us a second time because of those sins for which Christ has already been punished? Therefore, even though we will appear before the throne to give an account of our deeds for us, this is not judgment day. Indeed, listen to this, believer. For, indeed, for God's people, judgment day is not in the future. Judgment day is in the past. The day we dread most has already come and gone. For a Christian, judgment day was Good Friday, when Jesus Christ bore God's wrath and anger toward our sins in His own body on the cross. When the scene depicted here by John the Apostle finally comes, we appear before the throne, having already made, been made spotless and blameless. We will appear before the throne clothed in the white robe of Christ's perfect righteousness. Our names have been written in the book of life. Glory to God and amen. Death dethroned, defeated as the last enemy, 1 Corinthians 15 says. It is only against this backdrop that we can have hope and confidence in following the Lord to pursue holiness. I'm reminded of what Dane Ortland wrote in his book, Gentle and Lowly. He said, It is probably impossible to conceive of the horror of hell or of the ferocity of retributive justice and righteous wrath that will sweep over those found on the last day to be outside of Christ. Perhaps a word like ferocity here makes it sound as if God's wrath will be uncontrolled or blown out of proportion, but there is nothing uncontrolled or disproportionate in God. The reason we feel as if divine wrath can easily be overstated is that we do not feel the true weight of sin. Preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones reflected on this when he said, you will never make yourself feel, listen now, you will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there is a mechanism in you and a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We are all on very good terms with ourselves and we can always put up a good case for ourselves. Even if we try to make ourselves feel that we are sinners, we will never do a very good job of it. There is only one way to know that we are sinners, and that is to have some dim, glimmering conception of God. In other words, we don't feel the weight of our sin because of our sin. If we saw with deeper clarity just how insidious and pervasive and revolting sin is, then, as Lloyd-Jones suggests, we can see this only as we see 
the beauty and holiness of God. That's the only way we would ever see it for what it is, is upside the beauty and holiness of God. We would know that human evil calls then, therefore, for an intensity of judgment of divine proportion, not man's proportion. Even someone with such a profound sense of a loving heart of Christ as someone that you would deeply admire in the faith would have no trouble likewise asserting then that if his wrath against sin was the fire, then all earthly bellows would have not been able to make the furnace hot enough. And just as we can hardly fathom the divine ferocity that awaits those outside of Christ, it is as equally true that we can hardly fathom the divine tenderness already resting now on those who are in Christ. So God is equal in His tenderness and ferocity, in His salvation and in His judgment. His holiness finds evil more revolting than any of us could ever feel, but it is that very holiness that also draws his heart out to help and relieve and protect and comfort. We must bear in mind the all-crucial distinction between those not in Christ and those in Christ. Remember where we started this journey this morning. Holiness is to be set apart, the pursuit of purity. God is pervasively concerned with holiness. He is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled his glory. And Ezekiel 39 finds its ultimate fulfillment in the events described in Revelation 20. The whole earth is filled with God's glory as God's holiness is vindicated for all to see. And every tongue will confess the lordship of Christ, even if every knee bows reluctantly, grudgingly, unrepentantly. God's sovereign authority will be eye-poppingly visible. No more deception. No more secrets. Total revelation. So, how do we have hope? Well, I want to go back to Ezekiel 38 to close this, 39 rather, to close the sermon, because that's kind of where we started. That's what's in view in Revelation 20. And God offers us this, this great promise in Ezekiel 39, if you'll receive it. It says in Ezekiel 39, I'll read 26 to 29, it says, the Lord's jealous for his holy name. And then it says, they shall forget their shame. This is those that have previously caught up in a quagmire of sin. They shall forget their shame and all the treachery they've practiced against me. And they will dwell securely in their land and none to make them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from the enemies' land and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God because I sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them into their own land. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore. Uh, parts of this, of course, fulfilled after the exile, after the return. Listen to verse 29. A promise in perpetuity, and I will not hide my face anymore from them. When I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel declares the Lord God. In Galatians 6, 16 should ring as you read that. I will not hide my face anymore from them. Do you have the Spirit? Spirit in you? God doesn't hide His face from you. 2 Corinthians says it in chapter 3 very clearly. It says, But when the one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We do not have his face hidden from us on that day. We are not throttled on that day. He has made a provision for us. 
And with all the weight of it, there's joy in it too. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this word.